I was watching uh, some of the NCAA coverage last night and um, heard one of the commentators uh, start to uh, despair about one of the teams, I think Virginia Commonwealth, who had um, had to exit the tournament because of uh, COVID infections on the team and was talking about how difficult that was on the team and how uh, threatening it was for the rest of the tournament, uh, wondering if there would be other teams that would have to exit too. And Charles Barkley uh, kind of spoke up. He was part of the panel of commentators. I'd always thought of him as kind of a bad boy of basketball when he was playing. But he uh, spoke words of wisdom, um, reminding people there and in the audience that actually in the scale of things that has happened this year, the exiting of a team from a basketball tournament is not so much. That people have been worried about their health and safety, about their livelihoods, that we have woken up every day to find out more counts of people who have fallen victim to COVID. And I thought he showed great maturity and, and perspective. And it reminded me that we are very much in a context of these days where we're thinking about self-preservation. And it's not so much unlike the context in which Jesus spoke in this passage uh, that, thank you, Dan and uh, Stephen, for reading today from the Gospel of John. You see, Lazarus had been uh, buried, entombed for three days, and Jesus, his friend, brought there by Mary and Martha, had brought him out of that state of decay and death and into life again. And people were amazed, impressed, and even though Jesus had done other miraculous things, and Jesus had taught things that had drawn crowds, this act of literally creating new life for someone brought an unprecedented number of people to hear Jesus and lots of talk going on. And then the people who were religious leaders were incredibly threatened and they also ramped up their desire to tamp down this, what they saw as a threat to their power. It was Lazarus' resurrection and the response that it drew, people wanting to be near somebody who could, well, teach them, yeah, but literally give them the power of life that scared them because they saw the popularity of Jesus as a threat to their own power, to their own standing with the Roman government as the negotiators, the mediators of keeping the peace. It was a role from which they benefited, and they believed probably on some level, even in their own heart of hearts, that their well-being was tied to the fate of the well-being of the nation. And they started deciding that it was better for Jesus to go than for them and their position and the stability of their position in the nation to go. They were obsessively concerned 
with their own self-preservation. But perhaps the crowds that were coming to Jesus' side in greater number were also very much concerned with their own self-preservation. And that's the context in which Jesus gives this really striking interpretation of the cross. He never actually uses the term cross in, in uh, what he said to the followers on that day, but he alluded to it, the grain of wheat falling to the ground, dying, when he is lifted up from the earth. And it's clear in verse 33 that he was talking about the cross because the narrator explains he said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. So Jesus, in this time in which he's really focusing with metaphors and with a teaching on the cross and what is to come, makes some points that I want to lift up because uh, they bear remembering for us still. First of all, Jesus uses the, the grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies to talk about his death as being something that would be productive. Death is always an occasion for sadness. And especially when we're talking about the Son of God, we might think of it as a waste. But Jesus wanted to remind them that he saw his life and death as connected to giving birth to something larger, even than himself. If a grain of wheat falls to earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, literally doesn't die, it sheds its husk and has the, the inside grow out and the roots start to come down and it gets, uh, rather than getting its food from inside the grain, it starts to get its food from the nutrients in the soil and then it starts to poke up its head but that grain of wheat, when it's fallen to the ground and starts to grow, produces in each stalk 35 or 50 grains on a, on a head of wheat. Jesus' death would be productive because it would give birth to the community of faith. If he dies, his, it will bear much fruit. Fruit is Jesus' way of talking about the believers, the people of faith. Jesus' death will be productive. Furthermore, he wants us to understand that his death is kind of the culmination of a, pro of a proposal in a way. The voice that comes from the cloud confirming um, God's glory is coming soon and that God's glory is connected to the cross gave me a different perspective on the cross in and of itself. I, I've often thought, I think, of the cross as kind of uh, in a transactional way. I've heard and thought the gift of the cross is, is kind of like a, an assurance, a gift of the forgiveness of sin. Sometimes I've thought of the gift of the cross as a payment uh, for my debts and I've even maybe thought of it a little bit as a kind of ticket to heaven. But in this 
passionate description that Jesus gives about life and the life that he's giving in his death, I realized that the cross is more like a, it's more like a marriage proposal. It's the culmination of a, an investment of God that starts with the incarnation and comes through Jesus' teaching and culminates in this total commitment of God to the work of reconciliation. It's as if God is saying to humanity, I am with you through thick and thin. I'm with you in your innocent suffering. I'm with you in your self-induced destruction. I'm with you in your vulnerability. I'll be with you when you are, when you are too, too weak to stand up for me. I will be with you. I'm on your side so that I can bring you to my side. It's the final act of obedience to the project that begins in the incarnation for God to walk among and dwell with humanity. And as such, the cross isn't something that delivers a gift that we can take or leave or that we can receive separate from the gift giver. It is more like a marriage proposal. It demands a response. And that response is the creation of a relationship. Whoever serves me must follow me. When I was in high school, I, um, I was old even then. I didn't, didn't, uh, didn't like parties that much and uh, always dreaded um, uh, prom time because everybody would be talking about going to the prom and I, I don't like parties. I don't feel comfortable at them and I didn't want to go to a prom but I was on the student council in fact an officer and I had to go decorate the prom one year and I uh, was particularly then thinking oh man this is going to look kind of silly to go decorate and leave. Um, and then I heard a rumor that someone was going to ask me to the prom and uh, it wasn't anybody who made me want to go anymore. And, uh, and so, uh, but, but, I, but a very, very nice, nice guy and, uh, and probably somebody I would have been good friends with, but I did not see the prom as a place to make good friends. <clears throat> it seemed like a place of torture. So I, uh, I set upon figuring out a strategy to completely avoid talking to him. Uh, I was in a large high school, so you'd think that would not be difficult, but actually, uh, we were in some classes together, so I actually had a strategy where I was coming in kind of late, sitting right near the door, exiting quickly, and I had to do that several times a day. And um, it worked for like a week, and then I didn't hear any more rumors that I was going to get asked to the prom, you know how things circulate in high school. And so I kind of eased up my guard and wasn't caught off guard, and then like two weeks later, I got a phone call, which I wasn't expecting back then. No caller ID, no cell phones. Yeah, so you pick up the phone, and there was the question, and I had to give an answer. I have to tell you, it's miserable to avoid giving an answer. It would have been much better if I just said no at the beginning, but instead I had to be caught to say no. I think Jesus investment 
in us, in the cross, in the incarnation, in all that leads up to his final act of total commitment to winning us over. Jesus kind of demands an answer. I think, I think that we actually can kind of uh, come to church. Uh, I think we can conduct our religious lives kind of in the way that I did with, uh, I, almost, I almost said his name, um, trying to avoid answering the question, putting a lot of energy into being here, but kind of avoiding the simple yes or no, are you with me? And being with me means being in it all the way. When Christ is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. The investment that God made in reconciliation with the world, God risked in Christ for everyone. God made the invitation in Christ to everyone. Everyone's invited to give a yes or a no. The cross strangely illuminates life. In Jesus' death, he remained completely connected to God and completely transparent to God's purpose. And this is part of what he means when he's saying, if you would save your life, you would lose it. But those who hate their life in this world save it for another kind of life. This saying of Jesus is repeated in all of the Gospels. It must have been an important operating principle to Jesus. It's a difficult thing to get our heads wrapped around. We can see it by contrast. The priests and the Pharisees, who, who were so committed to self-preservation, were so in love with their life in this world, they showed the evil means that they would pursue in order to preserve it, to put to death an innocent man. But for the rest of us, what kind of choice does it put before us? So we say yes to Jesus. And then he says this embrace of a certain kind of life, this all-in commitment isn't just about me, it's also about you. What would it mean for us to hate our life in this world and save it for another kind of life? I think it's a difficult word, hate, to get around. My spiritual director, uh, Brenda Buckwell, has written a book that um, has really been helpful to me. I'm still working on it. I've got a long ways to go. Uh, but in it, she talks about uh, this movement of, and I think she would say that this is kind of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about hating life in this world and saving it for another kind of life, is that it's a move from centeredness on I or me or us, them, to oneness. It's a, a lessening of attachments 
to relationships and things and events and thoughts and outcomes and hopes and dreams that are ego-driven to a new God, a God-lens perspective. We move through a divinely created order without the need then for defensiveness, judgment, harsh words, lies, or control. We don't become less of a self, but more. And we grow toward the self that God's intends. A new rhythm of life is created. A new heart is born. A heart that knows God and trusts God. The gift of this new rhythm helps us see Christ in all things. Humility arises. We become even more grafted to God. And our response is compassion. Compassion as we look at the rest of the world and see the image of God. Hating our life is about hating our ego attachments and letting go of them to find attachments that are about God-centeredness and trusting God to be in and searching for God in all of our relationships. In some ways, we might think that this is more sectarian uh, that it, it's more focused on Jesus. But when we think of Jesus as being God's loving investment in the world to bring the world to God's side, it doesn't seem so sectarian. It seems actually less egocentric and more open to others. In a very small way, I've been experiencing this with the children uh, that I take down to the LEC. Uh, I saw my job as helping them get to their source of education. But along the way, we formed relationships. And I've I've started thinking about those relationships. I've been thinking about, well, I'm a minister. I should do something with those relationships. I should do something religiously productive. But whenever I start thinking like that, it becomes kind of ego-driven. And uh, I tried to give them some little religious books, and uh, that didn't go very far. But during our rides to the LEC down at Parsons Avenue, started singing uh, a couple times just to get them from uh, all talking all at the same time and wanting attention. So we would sing the wheels on the bus. Uh, they've started becoming more familiar with one another and thereby starting to jockey a little bit more for position and, and bickering and fighting a little bit more in the car. And, I'd been kind of getting concerned about it and tired of it. One day they got into the car and they did not, um, everybody seemed kind of subdued and uh, I didn't say anything. And somebody said, will you sing to us? And uh, I thought, well, sure. So I sang, uh, You Are My Sunshine. 
And then I, I was waiting for them to start talking again and interrupting me, but they didn't. And uh, so I went on and, and I just started singing songs I knew really well because I was driving at the same time. And uh, so I went to my old camp songs from Camp Otterbein. Then I started singing my mother's old camp songs, Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam to Shine for Him Each Day. After each song, I paused. They never started talking again. They just kept listening. Then I sang, Jesus Loves Me, and he's got the whole world in his hands. And then I did Amazing Grace. Still knows talking. And then I sang him a little prayer. And then I thought, oh, we're almost there. I'm going to stop. And I stopped, and a little voice said, will you sing Amazing Grace again? And I thought, wow. The spirit is already out there in the children, in other people. The image of God is already out there. If I would get my ego out of the way and stop worrying about trying to give people something and just enjoying who they are and sharing what I love, wow, that could really have some energy flow about it. It was a beautiful thing, and, and it helped me learn. In a, a book that the uh, conference uh, had for our study in uh, February, a very good book called The Adept Church, the gentleman who wrote the book said that uh, churches can take on characteristics of swamps, reservoirs, or canals. Um, Jesus is... Uh, the water of life, and uh, churches can take on characteristics that uh, are about the way they treat that water. So churches that are like swamps, well, what do swamps do? Uh, water stays in one place. They hold it in. They're uh, getting stagnant. He says that churches who uh, start getting worried about uh, whether or not uh, they're still productive, their numbers decline, their money declines. It can be really tempting to try to just hang on tight to everything that you have in place, to not change anything, and to hope that you can just stay alive. And of course, not staying, uh, focusing on staying alive that way would maybe be an example of what Jesus would talk about as a way to lose our lives. And then there are churches, he says, that are reservoirs. They're a little bit more oriented towards um, giving of themselves and going outside of themselves, but they kind of see themselves as just giving things, material things, from, from what they have uh, to create a connection with others. But it doesn't go back and forth, and so that doesn't really bring people into new relationship with the church or with, through the church with God. And then he says, churches should try to be like canals. Canals that, that make connections between people, that allow people to be involved in what they can contribute as well as what they receive, and in making connections with people, helping to connect others to God. That's the kind of back and forth flow of a canal. That is, I think the kind of back-and-forth flow of life and energy that Jesus means to birth. 
in the glory, the glory of love, the glory of the cross. May we take glory in being part of that divinely guided journey. May it be so.